Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 63, Troubleshooting Tips and Tricks. And I'm joined here by Jay. How you doing, Jay? I'm what I'm doing well, really, really well. How are you? Probably a little tired as you've been editing a lot. I know that. <laughs> I am. Yeah, I've been editing a lot of content, but it's uh, you know, I'm getting so caught up now that it just just feels great. I always complain, oh, I'm behind, I'm behind, but you know what? That's not the case now. So it feels great to have uh, content flow. I think by next week I'll totally be back to my normal content schedule. Awesome. Yeah, we've done 63 episodes. Well, this is our 63rd episode, which means with all the projects and all the things we talked about, we probably should talk about how to troubleshoot some of those things. That's when yep. we, you know, we were talking about doing it on the earlier uh, podcast episodes and we're like, now nah, let's push it back a little further because now we can uh, discuss some of the troubleshooting things, which is going to be kind of fun. But mm -hmm. before we jump into this, let's quickly thank our sponsor of this show. And that is Linode. They've been a sponsor for I'm, you know, I should probably count, but I think it was what only one or two episodes they didn't sponsor. So pretty much all of the shows, but we'll see 60 episodes or so. And uh, we like to thank them for being a sponsor. And these troubleshooting tips we will cover today will pretty much apply to even things you host in Linode. So if you need one of these projects that we talked about hosted somewhere on a public IP address external from you, and there's going to be more videos coming where that'll become applicable as well. Linode is the place to host it, you know, because not everything, or especially if you're behind CGNAT, is easy to host yourself in your home lab, even though, yes, we may consider Linode an extension of your home lab, that public-facing thing. Uh, maybe you want people to poke at it. Uh, let them poke at their IP address instead of yours. We have an offer code to get you started with Linode, and we thank them for being a sponsor of the show. Oh, and it's uh, Linode slash the home lab show. I should probably make sure I say that. <laughs> and they could be your ultimate DMZ if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Put it out there. Let's let their cloud deal with it. All right. What's the first tip on our list? Where do we want to start? Is it the before you buy? <laughs> yeah, I would think so. Um, All right. It, it makes sense to start here. Now, I do concede that this only probably benefits a, I don't know, 25% or less. I'm not really sure what the percentages are now. A lot of times if people buy equipment for home lab, it's mail order, it's eBay, things like that. You don't have, you, you don't, you can't touch it until you actually get it. But with things like fake Facebook marketplace, I'm not advocating for Facebook, but it exists. And, you know, we have to acknowledge that it exists. They have a marketplace and a lot of people are buying servers there. So it is the case that sometimes you actually can touch what you're about to buy before you buy it. And one of the first things that you can do, because what I've seen is that people just assume everyone else is running Windows, even people that are selling secondhand equipment, they might load Windows, you know, I don't know what version, maybe Windows Server or something. Anyway, if they, you know, will allow you to see it running, which, you know, if it's an in-person buy, why not? You really want to see that it works. The first thing you should do is go to the Windows Event Viewer immediately, because if there's actually a serious hardware problem, Windows is going to be complaining. Now, keep in mind, though, that the event viewer likes to complain. So there's never going to be a situation where you'll go to the event viewer and not see some critical errors. Okay, so the presence of critical errors or whatever, Windows just calls everything that. Um, now, you might get lucky and not see any errors, but you probably will. But there's always something in event log, yeah. unless the event log is completely broken. <laughs> Which is even worse. Um, but or suspicious if it's completely cleared before you arrive. Hmm. Um, mm, but if you yeah. look at it and you see like hardware errors about, um, you know, a device failing, don't buy it. That, that's that's going to, you're going to have some trouble with that device. So just 
say no thank you. And, you know, I, I've done this myself. There were like two laptops that I bought for a Linux on old laptop series. I really need to get back to that because it was a lot of fun. But both of them I bought, if I remember correctly, off of Facebook Marketplace, at least one. And I remember, you know, he brought it out. He put it on the back of his trunk and powered it on. And I just went right to the event viewer. And I'm like, um, yeah, I need to see if this thing works. And the only thing suspicious I found is that he put an Apple hard drive because it actually said in um, the oh. list of hardware devices. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, it is an SSD legit and it's made by name brands. I didn't really care. But anyway, the point is you can see some hardware errors. And if you do, then don't buy the device. Ignore the driver errors. That doesn't really affect you at all. That just means the person didn't install the driver for something. Um, you'll probably see errors about a non-clean shutdown. It happens. But if you, again, hardware errors, you definitely want to check that out. But but that's only if you can get physical access to it before you buy it. Like um, there's a server store in Ohio. I wish I could remember the name of it, but I've actually driven all the way down there because um, the guy will just let me, you know, power on whatever before I buy it. He didn't even know I had a YouTube channel, so it wasn't special treatment. Um, and you can also ask people to send some pictures of it powered on, yep. put something in the message so you know the pictures weren't doctored, and I doubt they'll take the time to really Photoshop it, but like, you know, write today's date on a Post-it note, stick it to the monitor, and take a picture. And yeah. there's little things you can do to try to verify. It, it is an aggravation because there are scammers out there. That's a lot of why we're mentioning this. Uh, don't blindly buy things. Now, there are reputable places you can buy from. Uh, you can, of course, look on eBay and things like that. And I'm not saying eBay is reputable, but you can at least try to make some determinations about the reputation of the particular person. Of note, when you look on eBay, uh, look at the person's selling history. And if yep. they made a fortune uh, and a great rating selling socks and next, thing you know, they're selling servers, someone may have taken over that account and <laughs> used that reputation to convince you that they were a great place to buy from. So just yeah. do a little bit of due diligence on the buying part uh, when you're building out your home lab. It's one of those little things that's, you know, you get excited. You're like, that's a great deal. And it has 128 gigs of RAM. <laughs> and then maybe it's not. Another thing to check too, if what you're buying is a physical server, and you can, if you can get pictures of this, even better. I, I kind of feel like they need to take pictures of this. Like, look at the capacitors. If Because if it's a server, you could just easily open up the case and look at it. You want to make sure none of the capacitors are bulging or leaking. Especially not leaking, but if they're bulging, they're about to leak. Yeah. So I, I will um, admit that's a little bit less of a problem now because they, most things have the more the better capacitors now but years ago that was a huge problem it's not the problem hasn't gone away completely uh the good news is it's just less of an issue here in 2022 <laughs> but i think but that going. even is more to my point though because a lot of the equipment that circulates when it comes to home lab is the older stuff before they fixed it and there was a certain dell power edge i wish i could remember the model number where this was so common and i remember going online and there was like somebody who was literally making money by um say hey send it to me and i'll redo the capacitors for you and he made a business out of it at the time yeah. because of how many <laughs> there were and those models are going to circulate uh, yeah you're right it's less of a problem now and especially if you're buying like a laptop i mean if you start trying to open up a laptop in front of somebody they're not going to let you do that that's going way too far um so of course everything i'm saying is situation specific but then the next thing though is what you should do before you put it into production. So you have this device and you know everything checked out for you and it's time to, to get it going. 
Now, this is the hardest thing for me because when I buy any device, I want to get it going right now. I don't want to wait. I, I mean, I'm, it's like a kid in a candy store. I want to just dive in and start munching on it. Don't <laughs> yeah. munch on your servers, right? But I just want to get going on it. But it is better to spend some time and do some more troubleshooting because it's possible you could have like memory errors. You can run mem test on it. You should run mem test on anything before you put it into production. Unfortunately, that does take a long time, but it's a lot less time than building the server finding out it doesn't work and you can't even trust the data at this point because you don't know what data went through bad ram and what's corrupted i mean that's a way worse situation just spend the time be patient run mem test and also run spin right on level two i'll talk more about spin right later but before i would even say if you have a brand new hard drive run spin right on it the problem is um you're pretty much looking at overnight at this point, at least. But um, if you could spare that time, SpinRide is going to just totally, um, it, I mean, even new drives are going to have some issues that the drive's firmware may not find. And that's what SpinRide does. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I still recommend you do that anyway, you know, regardless, because it just makes sense to make sure the, hard, the hardware is actually good before you start relying on it. That, that's, that's very important. Absolutely. So the other thing I want to mention, because Tom has something he wants to get out of the way. So I will mention this next because it's extremely important. And I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world for even mentioning this because I'm an offender here. Okay. I constantly don't do this no matter how many times Tom tells me to do this. So I'm trying to remember. Um, Check the physical layer first. Now we're getting back to the capacitors and all that, but I won't mention that. Um, You'd, you'd be surprised how many times it's a bad cable or something to that effect. I, I once had a whole roll of network cable that I bought, and I was making my own cables. And it's not hard to make cables. I thought I was just really bad at it. But it, it you know, it turns out that entire roll of cable was bad. I mean, it just ha- it was bad, no matter who made the cable. So uh, check the physical layer first, especially if you're dealing with Wi-Fi issues. You know, what are what are your walls made of? That's a very big, big thing there. Um, check the physical layer. Again, capacitors, but cable. Yeah, and the whatever. other thing, too, is just checking all the loose plugs and things like that. Yep. You know, we, we've had clients that make the assumption a switch is bad. And, you know, the whole leg of a building went down and there's six buildings and they're all fibered together. And they're in panic. Someone cut our fiber and everything else. I'm like, did you check the SFP modules? Well, no. I said, I, you know, they're they're a client that we know, uh, and we're like, there's a box of them. Last time I was in your office because you had spares just in case. And there's a pause, and he goes, yeah. I'm gonna go try that. You just email me back like 20 minutes later. Hey, that fixed it. It was oddly one of their SFPs went bad, but they thought someone cut the fiber and things like that. It started looking at there, you know, then they went to the, is a switch bad? Do we need to start reprogramming it because we can get to these switches? People start jumping all over the place on it. And sometimes it is something just really simple. And it's rare yeah. that those things happen, that a cable goes bad or a port goes bad, but it's not the, the number of times it's happened over the years is not zero. So you kind of methodically just go through all the, especially the easy things to check, you know, Um, that it makes it a lot faster to go through uh, just each easy section um, as you go and kind of work your way up there. But the checking the physical layer on a lot of that uh, loose plugs, loose fittings, loose connections, you know, those are all really just they're they're more common than the more advanced problems you think you have with it. Um, I went and 
even myself, I went into a little bit of panic when something happened at the office. And then it took me a second. I'm like, oh, oh that's right. Check the physical right here. It, it was something as absolutely simple as I should have just looked at somehow a plug had come out and I thought a server had just died. But it just a, somehow, I don't know how a plug came out. It was just a demo server, but, you know, I was like, my it demo's happens. broken. <laughs> it absolutely happens. I mean, sometimes it's obvious. I remember my first IT job ever, I was doing help desk in a factory. So, I worked in the office part and I would just walk out into the factory, which, you know, I got a lot of steps in and I ruined a lot of shoes. So I got a lot of exercise, but um, I go out to the factory floor and address an issue. One of which was this person complaining that his network connection is, is constantly bad um, and intermittent. And when I go in there, I see the network cable lying across the floor and he has a roller chair. So, of course, he's backing up over the darn cable repeatedly. And I'm like, did you ever maybe think that we, you shouldn't like have your chair running over the cable? And maybe we kind of should consider like not having the cable across the floor. Now, that's obvious, but often it's really not that obvious. You just have to kind of look at it. I've troubleshooted things for like four hours, sometimes months, like my Wi-Fi issue from a couple of years ago, Tom, I was complaining about it for a couple of months and I tried every setting in Unify known to man and come to find out it was just a, a bad cable going to the access point Yeah, after all that. So yeah, check the physical layer first. Absolutely. All right. Now the physical layer is out of the way. The one I'll get out of the way that I just wanted to throw out there. We didn't, a lot of these tools we're going to talk about next are going to be, going to be a lot of Linux command line troubleshooting tools. I'll, I'll have one uh, PF sense one in there, but windows has sys internal utilities. It's a long list. I don't know if there's going to be an episode on sys internals, but there's enough documentation out there from Microsoft on it. It's kind of the de facto set of tools you're going to use inside of windows to troubleshoot a lot of detailed windows problems. Um, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that or any time on that other than to mention generally you're going to use the sys internal tools and there we go. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. I, I would go as far as to say that if you, if you do use windows servers in your home lab, I mean, it, I know enough about windows to know, get sys internals. Like I, I know every windows admin I've ever talked to, they all say, you know, how great those tools are, sing their praises. So yeah. if you run Windows, make sure you also have those tools downloaded as well. So that way they're ready for you whenever and if, if you ever need them. You know, um, before we jump to the next one, Jay, let's let's talk about one real quick here. Because uh, I seen someone mention in here and we should have been on our list because right. it's always DNS. It is always right? DNS. Yep. Um, Dig is time. your friend when it comes to DNS. I have a whole video on using Dig to help troubleshoot DNS uh, issues. It's, you know, finding mail server problems, whether or not you have MX records, A records, and all those types. Um, I don't know if that, I mean, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it right now because maybe that's a uh, episode of how DNS works. Um, I don't know if we've right. ever covered that, but that might be just its own episode because all the different trickiness yeah. um, to DNS. But I have a video on DNS. Dig is your friend. Uh, NS lookup. Is NS lookup deprecated in Linux or... I, well, I don't know because deprecated in Linux generally means um, you really support for the next 10 years that everybody uses it for like, um, what, 10 to 15 years after everyone tells you not to. And then finally it goes away if it even does, because, you know, it's weird. I've um, been using dig for so long. I never think about NS lookup. Um, I think it's still installed by default. I don't know. But dig is my go to tool for all of my things. Uh, it's just, you know, easy to use dig at the IP address of the DNS server. And then the 
commands after. Uh, but it, it's just invaluable because you want to know how each server responds. Um, and, yep. you know, bug us enough and send us some messages and tag us in Twitter. And we'll do a whole episode on DNS because, you know, we can I'll, I'll dive into my zone transfer story that got goofed up one time. So, so uh, here's the thing. I'll make a deal with you, Tom. I will absolutely be on board with an episode on DNS just as long as we call the episode. It's always DNS. That must be the title. And then it's always DNS. That yeah. has to be the title. Then I'm on board. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll mention DNS definitely on the list. All right. Now, um, you have a good one in here. X uh, or RescueZilla. Yeah, I, there's a few tools in here, and I'm going to mention a couple of them. Um, and there's, and by the way, I, I know we're going to get comments like, why didn't you mention X? Why didn't you mention Y? Trust me. Like, I know. Like, there's a bunch out there. But um, RescueZilla I like because it's compatible with CloneZilla if you do take images, which is which is great. We had an episode about that. But RescueZilla supports those images plus a bunch of other tools. So, um, you know, your gen general troubleshooting tools and apps and things, it's, it's kind of like the Swiss army knife of uh, bootable tools. So it's one of the things that I recommend that you have flashed to a USB or... Um, you know, Tom turned me on a Ventoy recently, which is a lot easier. Um, I haven't tried it with Ventoy, but but I assume unless the knowledge base says otherwise, you can use it with that. Either way, at the very least, have a flash drive with RescueZilla on it, because if you need to do any data recovery, anything like that, it's a good one to have. But I also mentioned Zubuntu as well, which is going to be strange at first, but there's a reason. So I didn't mention Ubuntu or Pop! OS because, well, first of all, the thing is, I'm talking about live bootable Linux distributions where you can run it off a of USB, which is pretty much the majority of distros nowadays. Um, what I like about Zubuntu is that it has the same, you know, it's built on Ubuntu, so it has the same compatibi compatibility, but GNOME doesn't really work well on GPU-starved devices. And let's face it, unless you have a very specific kind of server, you probably don't have a GPU because a lot of the server hardware, it has GPU enough to show something on the display and that's it. Like yeah. it's not built for games unless there's you put a GPU in one, it's probably going to have the weakest video card you can get. So you probably won't be running GNOME on that. So Zubuntu is lightweight. It has the XFCE desktop environment. And I know there's lighter weight ones, but... I feel like Zubuntu has like some of the best functionality with um, being lightweight, so it'll run well on whatever server. And you can use that for file recovery. So, for example, you want to get all the files off a server, you could just um, connect it to the network, boot from Zubuntu, rsync everything to somewhere else, verify the data, then you can sell it or whatever it is you want to do. And another thing is that it has boot repair that you could download from the repositories. And even though it's live, you can still install software until RAM gets full, obviously. But um, you can install the boot with that. And Gparted. <laughs> oh, yeah. Gparted Live is another one. But yeah, Zubuntu for file recovery and boot repair, for sure. Uh, it's just a good thing to have. I mean, you could even use it to, to Google the problem you're having with the yes. server on the server. I mean, let that noodle around in your mind for a minute. Um, but yeah, Gparted Live is great. Well, uh, no, you can actually load Gparted in uh, the uh, Xbuntu as well, is what I was you saying. You can, right, yeah. you, you can. And, and um, for some reason, I've always had Gparted Live separate. I don't even know why. Which is nice, and that works too. Um, 
Gparted separate is nice if you want to use it. It's just a live CD you can download that boots right up in Gparted. It's nice because it's really lightweight and dedicated task. Uh, but if you're troubleshooting things and you find that troubleshooting leads you to partition problems, then you can apt-get install Gparted along with Googling those two problems right on the rescue one, which is kind of fun. Like Jay said, it's let that noodle around a little bit. You can boot up, do all your diagnostics, have internet, do everything on there, solve the problem. And the other advantage of using something like Xbuntu is, like he said, our syncing files, but we'll go a step further. You have all those facilities in there for SMB mount and everything else to be able to mount other things uh, without having to load a lot of that. That kind of just comes default loaded in a bun in the Xbuntu uh, to get yeah. things moving. So it's a great way to rescue servers and things like that, that you don't know why that last command caused the problems that did or what happened, but it's a good way to help unravel that. Now, another thing that I'll mention about this, that's probably even more important is that live media help us determine like, is it a hardware issue or a software issue? Because if, the problem follows whatever distro you boot, then it's probably hardware. I mean, obviously it varies, but if you try to reproduce your problem in live mode, you'll learn a lot about the situation that you're dealing with, especially if everything works fine in live mode. And another trick you can do with live media that I don't think a lot of people know this, you can, for example, boot from let's say Zubuntu and then get another flash drive and put that in another slot. And then you go to install Zubuntu, but be careful. Don't install it on your actual server. Point it to the other flash drive, and yeah. it'll treat that flash drive as a legit hard disk. And then what that flash drive then becomes is a actual install of Linux that is not in live mode. It's actually booting. It's writable. It's every bit a real Linux installation on the flash media and um, you don't have to deal with the try or install or any of that other stuff. It's already installed. It's installed on the flash drive. So at that point, you have a legitimate hard drive. Yeah, it could be a little bit slower, but you can install or build whatever software it is that you had running on the internal disk and see if that works. And then you can take that flash drive out with your software and settings on it, put it in another server and see if it works better there. Because if it does, then there might be something specific to the original server. Yes, absolutely. And what's next on our list here? So there's going to be a lot of um, smaller things to mention. Um, one of which, and I have a video coming out that goes over logging, but tail the syslog. I mean, yes. it's like the ultimate thing. When you are troubleshooting anything, just tail dash F syslog or var log messages, regardless of your, I mean, depending what distro you have that you could watch the messages scroll as you're trying to reproduce the problem. And it's the number one way that I troubleshoot SSH because SSH, oh, yes. people, people complain about this because they're like, well, I can't connect to the server via SSH. And it's not even giving me an error message or anything that really tells me why. Sometimes, I mean, it, it could tell you why, but I mean, SSH will tell you that your password is wrong when your password was not the issue and it was the key. <laughs> I mean, there's just all kinds of oddities there. So I think the issue is that SSH doesn't want to give you too much information about why you can't connect because if it's a bad guy, then they're getting information about why their attempt isn't working. So it's a good thing that it's not giving that info. But on the other end, you could, like in a, in a uh, you know web console window, just tail the log, try to SSH from your terminal and in the logs, especially var log secure or the auth log in Debian will give you information about SSH. But 
for everything that's not SSH or security related, just tailing the syslog or varlog messages will absolutely give you some information that'll help you understand exactly what kind of problem you might be running into. So uh, you could check D message as well. That's a kernel ring buffer. There might be some information in there as well. Um, another thing that's that's not as known, because this is a problem that doesn't happen often, but I think home lab people would be more likely to run into this than the average user. Um, I'm talking about inodes. This is not something that people really think about first because- oh, yeah, seen... it's that's an interesting one too, um, mm -hmm. because this was a topic I just brought up when I was talking about the new way XCP and G backs up. And I'm glad they added the warning on there because they're doing uh, data chunking into lots of small files to make merging mm -hmm. deltas faster. But- that chunking of putting it all in a bunch of small files, they warn you if you're not using ZFS or ButterFS, don't do this. If you hit an EXT4, it only takes X amount of data to completely yep. overrun uh, all of that. So that's, you're just yep. gonna have a real problem. <laughs> For sure. And I, I remember very early in my career, how frustrated I was when I ran into, the, into this. So here's what the symptoms look like. You have an error that the, the disk is full. You go to write a file and it says insufficient free space or something like that. And then you do what everybody does, DF-H, and you look at it. And I looked at it and I'm like, it's 20% full. It's literally got 80% of its space free. So it's not full. What's going on here? And then after a ridiculous amount of researching, I stumbled upon this. I'm like, oh, so if I type DF-I instead of dash H, I'll see how many inodes are in use and then the maximum number of inodes that can be used. And like you're saying, it takes a ginormous number of, of, uh, of files to fill up the inodes. This is not something you'll run into unless something is really wrong. Like you, if you have a mail server, which is probably the big problem, you shouldn't be running your own mail server. But if you are and you have like a bunch of like error messages like Nagios would be sending out that are constantly queuing up and duplicating over and over and over again, then that could cause it. Um, it's probably more likely to happen in a company though, honestly. Um, yeah. Anyway, DF-I, if you have yeah. a situation where the disk is reporting that it's full, but you look at it and it's not actually full, at least not in the sense that you would think of it as being full. Yeah. And I'll also mention, I almost just out of muscle memory habit, I'm going to type uh, DFIH. And the reason why is I just want human readable on the sizes. It just makes it a little bit easier to, to, to show you on the space side of it, a human readable format. So you understand it easier. Um, it, Cause at glance, if you're, if you don't see just how many digits that is, when you deal with larger storage places, you're like, Oh yeah. And uh, it's easier to see, Oh, that's a G in front of there. We have that many gigs free of right. space on there. And just a touch back on the, log files there's a great utility that's free is built into most repositories called lnav lnav mm -hmm. and lnav is great so lnav will allow you to do color-coded real-time plus has regex matching of any of the logs you uh put into it and you can even take and put multiple logs together into one lnav view so if you wanted to watch two log files simultaneously in real time you can type lnav in the two different log files and it will consolidate the view on there i've done a whole video on it uh, it's just a really impressive tool for being able to not just see the logs or search the logs but also watch them in real time as something's happening it's just it's an invaluable troubleshooting tool for sure when you uh, have log problems to go through. And another 
uh, thing I'll mention about logging. This is thanks to Michael in the chat room because I can't believe I forgot. Actually, I can I can believe it because I'm you know, I started using Linux way before System D was even thought of. So I'm still not like conditioned to think of it like doing everything the System D way. But you know, it is the way it's going. Um, and, and no, I'm not trying to start a flame war. <laughs> believe me. But journal CTL dash F dash F is follow. So you could follow a log file, which is great. But you could also use the dash U option to follow a specific unit. So if you wanted to um, follow SSH, then you could use um, dash U and then SSH. And what's easy to remember, because I've said, you know, when nobody's around, I mean, come on, we've probably all done this. We're trying to get something to work and we get agitated. We're like, F you, you know, we get upset. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Journal CTL dash FU. It's so easy to remember. Yes. And then the unit name after. I mean, obviously you could do dash U F, right? But it's not as fun. So if you do dash F U and then the unit name like SSHD or whatever it is, you'll follow that specific unit's messages and you won't see messages that are meant for a different service. So that could help you narrow that down. So it could be like on a on a Ubuntu, you know, journal CTL dash FU Apache 2 or HTTPD if you're on CentOS and, and so on. So that's the system D equivalent of the tail dash F. Yeah. And uh, I'll give a shout out to Cat Daddy for Duff, D-U-F. Um, that is prettier than that. I had actually not used it before. I knew because it wasn't installed on my system. I just installed it really quick. It, it wasn't it was in the repository, but uh, Duff is a more enhanced, prettier version. I know I've seen it before at some point. I didn't know what people were using when they showed that. So it's a really nice kind of N-curses drawn version of the uh, DU command. So that's clever. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I was going to mention when it comes to all like these disk utilities for, for free space related shenanigans, the interesting thing here, you have to install them before it becomes a problem because if yes. your hard disk is completely full, then you're not going to be able to install Duff yep. because it's full. Um, so obviously your inability to install Duff answers your question. Yes, the hard drive is full. Yeah. You know, problem <laughs> solved, right? But you, you know, mean I give you the error message you expect though. <laughs> but you know, considering what you, Tom, have added to the list, which I'm gonna let you own this one, um, that's another one that you'll want to install before it becomes a problem because then you can't install it if you have no space to install it in, but it'll help you with your free space. Yes. NCDU, and there are there are utilities that are graphical, uh, like UI graphical. This one actually has some graphics to it. Um, yep. I actually was just using this today because I had to solve some Elasticsearch problems uh, where one particular index was too big, but I, I wanted to delete stuff from the command line. So using this in the command line, it can analyze all the directories and then tell you how much data is in each one of them. And when you have, well, I don't know, 600 of them in a server that's storing a bunch of Elastic data, and you just want to purge one particular index because something broke and that's the fastest way to fix it. Uh, it can help quickly find the offending folder that had... Uh, 400 extra gigs of data for no reason in it when most of the other ones have a gig of data. So uh, it's a really nice utility for searching down and figuring out what's taking up all the space on a, you know, per folder basis, per directory basis, however you want to call it, uh, and, and drill down into it. It also uh, trees down as you go into each of these. It is just a really simple utility, but boy, is it handy. Um, I've actually used it. I had a, a weird Docker problem where the Docker didn't delete a bunch of stuff that didn't show up in Docker, but I did use it and I found all the extra files that the 
database mm-hmm. when uh, something had failed uh, had an extra replicated copy on it. It wasn't in use by anything, but it was definitely using up space. <laughs> that could happen. Yeah, so it's sometimes those utilities, but it's just really handy sorting out space problems of Linux. We've spent a lot of time on that, but you also, in real life, you spend some time on sorting out uh, storage issues. So, <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it, it's storage in DNS and, and number of contenders with DNS being number one, obviously, because you know we we can't even the entire internet can break sometimes. Um, it happens. Another thing to address here is this kind of a weird problem to work through you have an issue on your server and you want to troubleshoot it and try a few things but you're also kind of scared of like um making the problem worse like breaking it more and then it becoming more you know harder and harder to figure out how to fix it because you know you just made it worse um one thing to keep in mind is that if you have your server running in a vm clone it or take a snapshot, depending on the data. If you had like a, you know, 100 gigs of data or, or way more, it's going to take a lot longer to clone, obviously. But if you clone a, a VM, and I'll do this on Linode and Proxmox both, I could just, you know, use all of my troubleshooting against that clone. And I don't care if I break it. I'll delete that clone and create another clone until I get it down to a science about what exactly fixed the problem. And I know exactly what to do in the on the produ- production instance. Now, of course, you could take a snapshot all the same. Yeah. That'll serve the same purpose. It doesn't have to be a full clone. But, you know, some companies out there will even do full clones just to, you know, put in some, you know, backup testing as well. Um, so it kind of gives you an opportunity to test your backups. If you grab a backup that was taken, you know, after the problem started and you restore the VM, you know, your backups are at least working because you're able to restore it and the data is there. But if it has a problem, then you can just troubleshoot it. And I think it is kind of liberating to have this feeling like I could do whatever I want to the server. It's not my main thing. I could break it and that's fine. And then you just have no hesitation and you might actually be able to fix the problem sooner because you know you have a contingency plan just as long as you're not a bonehead like I've done sometime. And then you're actually on the production server because the PS1 prompt is exactly the same on both. Okay, you got to be careful, right? But with a clone of your VM, if you're troubleshooting, you can absolutely... Uh, get it down to a science as far as what caused your issue and what you need to do to the real one to fix it. Yeah. There's, and I have a lot of snapshots that are frequently named before Tom did a thing. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just hurry up and snapshot something, run the command, see if the outcome is what I had hoped or not what I had hoped. And if it is great, I'll eventually delete my uh, point in time that was before Tom did the thing. Yeah. That's really handy. It's one of the reasons, you know, virtualization is so popular. It isn't just because it makes a lot of things easier or more efficient use of your hardware, but it also allows you to grab those points in time where you can say this point in time was exactly, you know, before I did this command that I think will work, I think it will fix my elastic indexes. Ooh, that didn't fix them at all. That seems to have caused a completely new problem. <laughs> so we yeah, heard you know, <laughs> It's funny you mentioned that because I'll do like a snapshot that's base install, um, updates installed, you know, kind of down different layers. I have so many snapshots that if a VMware admin looked at it, they would just get red hot mad and there'd be steam coming out of their ears. You know, you you need to get rid of those snapshots. I've heard that over and over again from VMware people. But, you know, snapshots are a very useful tool and I use them without hesitation. Yeah. But also the majority of my YouTube videos are um, actually the result of a VM. I record from real hardware. But before I hit the record button, I 
rehearsed on a virtual machine and I had snapshots to know like or to test what's required and what's not because I see a lot of how-tos out there that'll say you need to do these 10 things and I do like six of those things um, or check the documentation from the project and it doesn't even have those things in there. So then I just keep trying over and over again until I get it down to a science and then I, re I record it on real hardware because I know it's going to work. So yeah, I, I mean, I take snapshots way too much, I think, but it works. Yeah. Um, next couple utilities, and we're going to get into the networking side of things now. And I really like it's just simple, but it gives you real time stats from the command line. And yes, you can do this with a couple of utilities we'll get to, but BMON is really simple, B-M-O-N. And it monitors your network, gives you a cool little graph to show you how much data is going across, but it can also give you the bytes, collision, errors, broadcast deliveries, uh, fragmentation problems, a lot of little details about your TCP IP stack. And when you're doing a bunch of goofy little troubleshooting with networking, it's kind of helpful uh, to be able to see that. Next one on that list is going to be, and I seen Netstat, and someone said the replacement is SS. Yes, uh, the, use both. Um, SS or Netstat, both are solid. And you want to see what connections are going somewhere and what connections are going back and forth. Two things. Those are great for having snapshots. There's a lot of scripts that probably have a lot of that integrated in there, especially with a lot of Netstat, because you need to know what is or is not connected. But let's go a step further and let's watch that in real time, filtering for connections even. IPTRAF-NG. IPTRAF-NG is awesome. It lets you in real time with a completely, because you can SSH into a server and do this. By the way, when you do that, also when you create the filter, you can create inverted filters, like please ignore the SSH connection I have going into this, and then start looking for the connections you have in there. IPTRAFNG is just really helpful. Um, let's say you want to see if a certain server has a TCP connection to a certain IP address, or maybe even just certain ports, what's connecting on this particular port that I have a service running on. And I wanted to update on the screen in real time and have a nice little, it's all just driven through keyboard commands or up down arrows to go through menus, kind of an end curses look, but it makes it really nice to just go through those menus and go, all right, I can see this, or I can see what's hitting the ports. And easy example, maybe you're setting up a Unify server and you want to understand what services are coming, connecting to one particular port on there, then you can start doing that and make a list of those IP addresses. This is just some really, those handful of utilities are just kind of a combination of things I use a lot to kind of burn through and understand the TCP connections going on and what's going on with them. I'll also give a shout out because BMON does a nice job, but if you just want to watch speed, there's IFTOP, and that's interface top. It's kind of like top, but for the interface. So we'll show you how much bandwidth per IP. And then there's also speedometer, um, which will give you a speed rating for that network interface and kind of has a cool graph to it. And all this is a command line. So these are all just really helpful when you want to watch some of the data going across. And Netstat is a great idea. One of those things that um, is, is technically being deprecated, but in Linux, it takes a very, very long time. So I think your advice will probably be good for another 10 years. I'll never understand why getting rid of legacy things is so hard. And companies, I get it because I know what the challenges are, but I still reach for Netstat. And I haven't made the SS command uh, muscle memory yet, no matter how many times I see articles out there telling me I shouldn't use Netstat. It's it's just install the net tools package and it's there. So, I mean, as long as they make the, make the package available to me and it's installable, um, I, I know technically as an educator, I should be telling people to not use deprecated things. But um, honestly, in my opinion, the warnings are out there. 
and they usually have the warnings out there a very long time in advance. So if someone um, all of a sudden can't install it anymore and they're not ready, you know what's on them because they should have paid attention to that warning. But while it's in the repository, it's muscle memory. It's really hard to break, but yeah, yeah, that it is. Now yep. there's plenty of other networks too. I see people talk about more of them, but we'll move on to using iPerf. I suggest mm -hmm. this all the time and it's going to be kind of related to another question someone asked about MTU. When you're doing some of these troubleshooting things, iPerf is a great way to load up interfaces and this works in Windows and works in Linux and works in FreeBSD. There's co compilation. I think there's uh, there's an Android. I don't know if there's an iPhone, but there's even an Android app for it. Wow. Um, iPerf is great. It's even built into PFSense. The, the overall with iPerf is you set up one server to listen and the other server to broadcast. And then you can test the line speed because before people in start diving into, I can't figure out why I can't get these file transfers between my NAS and my computer going. I always ask and I rarely see anyone start with a, I tried iPerf and I'm getting a full connection between these two devices and I'm not getting the speed I want on my NAS. It always starts with my NAS is only transferring at X, you know, I have a 10 gig connection, but it's not even getting to one gig. I'm like, what's iPerf say? And there's always like a, a, a 24 hour response in my forum post before, oh, I did test iPerf and I had it plugged into the wrong port because I couldn't get above a gig. I'm like, okay, now we know the problem. Um, iPerf yeah. is just a handy utility for understanding whether or not you have solid connectivity. It does not write any files. So you are not limited by the file system in it. It is doing just a raw network socket basically to go from point A to point B and see how fast we can get there. And if you can't get there at full speed, you have a problem kind of related right. to the MTU problem. When you think about the way MTUs in the way you're doing the chunks, um, if the switch has a misalignment, so to speak, you set a 9,000 MTU, but then your switch actually requires you to set a 9,000 plus a few extra bytes for the header. And that can cause a problem because you've got some extra VLANs in there. And so it's offsetting it. You'll run into an iPerf problem right away when you start uh, connecting devices and realize something's dropping some of the packets and you now have less packets going. So there's lots of retry transmissions going across this mm -hmm. line and retry transmissions take up bandwidth. Therefore, you do not get the full bandwidth. iPerf just makes a lot of that troubleshooting and tuning really easy to do when you're doing it. It's just, it's like the common question I ask all the time is, did you run iPerf? Um, Cause yeah. I do a lot of NAS troubleshooting, a lot of VM troubleshooting. iPerf is even built into XCPNG. I believe it's probably natively defaulted or easy enough to install on Proxmox. It's also in TrueNAS. So it's already mm -hmm. on the platforms you use. And then to go a step further, you can load it up on your phone because the next question is how fast is the Wi-Fi? Uh, well, it depends where you're standing and iPerf can kind of make it pretty easy because you can have a fixed number. You know how fast iPerf is and you keep moving between fixed points and seeing how fast the data traverses at full speed across the access points. So iPerf is just, it's an easy free utility, been around forever, works on all the platforms. And uh, I just find it really, really handy for doing all the network speed troubleshooting. You know what? It's funny. I Before I discovered iPerf, which I, I wish I knew about it before I did, my go-to was like having the larger version of the CentOS ISO downloaded, the DVD, and I would just send it from one computer on the LAN to the other and just kind of do a verbose mode and just watch how fast it goes, which is not an accurate way to do it. But 
um, before iPerf. That was totally my go-to is just send a big CentOS image across the network and see how fast it gets there. But don't do not do that. Use iPerf. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's not. iPerf is just uh, makes life simple. Now, right. to go a step further, this is a little bit more in-depth, but definitely worth if you want to play with lots of tuning things. And I've used this plenty of times in my videos. And that's Veronics. Veronics test suite is amazing. If you want a test suite where you can have it all graphed and mapped out for you so you don't have to open up your own spreadsheets to do this, uh, Veronics just has an amazing set of utilities. It's used by the industry as a whole. You'll you'll see other, not just YouTube channels, but uh, lots of people serve the home and all those people. Whenever they do the test, they'll run the Veronics lab test. Uh, mm -hmm. and it's just great because you have a repeatable, absolute consistent you can even script it you can go further and it has a web interface if you want to get complicated into it but just using the command line pharonics you download the suite load it up on a server run the commands document make notes i should say of just which commands you ran so you run it consistently they have a test suite that'll test for everything from processor memory they have sql simulators apache simulators so you can simulate the entire type of workload and this is used commercially i know by a lot of companies before they build servers because they kind of determine what is this server going to be set for oh this is going to be your you know sql server all right let's go ahead and simulate a sql server on this then you run the command set on there. It creates an output. Then you, for each time you run it, it'll ask you, would you like to upload these results? You just keep saying yes. And for each run you do, you can make notes of what you changed. Change this configuration. So you're running the same test. The important part is you're creating a consistent baseline of tests. And then for each note you made of your change. For example, I did my iSCSI versus NFS. Nothing different. The command output was the same. The only thing different was the VM was stored on an iSCSI target for one and an NFS target for another. And I ran each one of those sequences of tests. And this is how I get those different performance numbers. But having that consistency you get from something like Veronix allows you to tune because you can't really tune without a consistent baseline test that you run perfectly the same. You can't just say it feels faster now because <laughs> that's that's the kind of fuzzy way of doing it. You want something that's extremely objective. Uh, and that's why if you see me and I thought about maybe I'll do a video on it because I don't think anyone has of how Veronix works, um, but it's free. It's open source. Uh, mm -hmm. It's easy to get access to. And it is a wrapper in some ways for a lot of other utilities um, because it uses under the hood FIO and a few other things. Uh, it even has a uh, kernel compile benchmark, but if I'm not mistaken, it actually loads GCC and compiles to make it work. <laughs> so, <laughs> so just to uh, address a comment in the chat room, because I feel like a lot of people are going to have this um, same question is P-H-O-R-N-O-N-I-X. Yes. Because when you hear someone saying it, yeah, it yep. doesn't sound like it, but it's that's what it is. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And it, I, I've used it, too. It's it's really good. Um, now, it does share the name with the new site, Pharonix. And yes, they're the same people to produce it because they do a lot of Linux testing and they built this utility to have a consistent baseline for the reviews. So it is yep. a it is also Pharonix News is not coincidentally named it is the test suite yeah. is named after and maintained by them they do a lot of testing there and of course this is also uh really cool the results database is public um by default people make it public but you can then look at something maybe the pharonix news site tested and then you can compare your benchmarks to theirs and that's one of the things it'll give you is stats on that so you can see how you're doing uh to get baseline averages especially you know uh drive performances uh 
very tricky to do with a lot of setups and Phoronix, you know, trying to say, all right, is it as fast as this array or that array when you're testing things? It's, it's really, it, it gives you some really good numbers. So mm-hmm. definitely um, I, I, it's an involved utility. Uh, if there's enough people message me or DM me on Twitter or something and say, Tom, can you make a video about it? Cause it seems kind of hard because our documentation is sparse, <laughs> but it's, it's not, if you play around, you just kind of figure it out. If you're familiar with running command line stuff uh, and once you kind of get the nuances of it, you're like, Oh, and they do have forums and support as well. So. Wanted to take a quick moment and mention more about SpinRate because I meant to mention oh, yeah. that at the same time I was talking about Zubuntu and you know RescueZilla that it was another one to keep on hand. Um, now what SpinRate is is a way of um, triggering the error correction on the drive to do the job that it's supposed to do anyway. Because let's be honest, we're not the fact that SpinRate exists is great because it's useful, but it shouldn't exist because this is the job of the hard drive to be doing the error correction, but the error correction of the disk firmware is just not that great. So what SpinWrite does is if it has a, if there's a bad sector and all hard drives have bad sectors and then in SSDs, we have bad cells. It, if you have a situation where you can't read data from a drive, what SpinWrite tries to do is it tries brute force almost to read the, the sector over and over and over and over again. It's like a, a three-year-old that's asking the same question over and over again is asking the hard drive for that data over and over again. And the hard drive is answering, I can't read this. I can't read this. The hard drive is supposed to say, you know, a long time ago, there's an error with this sector. Let's map it to a, a good sector, but it doesn't do that as good as it should. So spin right is just a way to force the drive's firmware to do what it's supposed to do. And the situation that it helps in is, of course, file recovery, but it also kind of helps with, um, I think they call it disk rot, where you have things that are slower to load, but they do load. It's just over time because um, there's some wear. It actually forces the data to get mapped to a better area. And it can actually make a slow install um, actually feel fast again. And all you did was run spin right on it. So I just make sure to, on physical hardware, you don't need to run this on VMs. That'd be crazy. Don't do that. Yeah, don't but do you that. can run it on the hypervisor um, on the actual physical hardware. You could run it on SSDs at level two. I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, level two is what you want because some of the ones, some of the modes will take weeks. I mean, that's when you have data, like it's you need that data and you didn't have good backups and you don't mind spending, having this thing run for weeks to have like a 5% chance that it might read the data and, and you get that data back. But just running it every year in your physical hardware makes sense. And also if you run it on brand new hard, hardware, that, might also help as well. So I wanted to, it's not free, by the way. I, I want to throw that out there. Um, it's not free. It, it is slow. There's a faster version coming out. It's been in, in development for like 10 years. Um, it'll come out one day, promise. Well, actually, it's not for me to promise. Um, it's made by Steve Gibson of GRC. He's one of the uh, two hosts of Security Now, one of my favorite podcasts. But I've used SpinWrite a lot, and I like it. And it's saved some, it's actually done a lot of good. So it's just one of those things I like to have around i'm not saying to go buy it because what if you don't need it but if if you run it every year i think it will actually add value so it's just even though it's not free it's something to consider yeah Um, if you're a linux person gibson's put a lot of work into it his new version is a lot faster so yeah his new version isn't out unless it is i think you can get the beta if you buy it if i'm not mistaken oh okay well that's interesting well i'm still waiting for the final release yeah i'm waiting for the final release so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's one of those things that that 
really shouldn't help, right? Because again, hard drive firmware should be doing this stuff and it shouldn't be an issue. But unfortunately, SpinRate exists because the hard drives themselves just don't do a good job with this kind of thing. So that's um, why I wanted to recommend that. Yeah, no, it, that's and it's worth um, it's worth mentioning that because it's one of those things. And I guess I'll mention this too because it's kind of related to SpinRite is TestDisk. I don't know if you've ever used it. It's a it's a hmm. command line file recovery uh, utility. It's it's one of those challenges sometimes where people lose things, and TestDisk has some ability to try to do it. SpinRite try to recover it, just back everything up. Um, I, I I know we're saying that, but everyone's like, "Well, cool. I wish I would have heard that before I lost my data." But recovering right. data is always really really tricky. But I'll throw that out there. And SpinRite can sometimes save a hard drive, you know, provided it hasn't gone too far. <laughs> exactly. If your BIOS can't read the disk then SpinWrite cannot help you in that situation. Um, yeah, so it does not recover from catastrophic failures. <laughs> right, if it catches on fire, it's not going to help. Nope. Um, now, TestDisk, was that the one that people use for like when SD cards yes. start getting corrupted? It's actually, I, I've, over the years, it's been a minute since I've used it, but we used to have a lot of photography companies. And um, I, I mean, I would suggest they don't do this, but they would. Uh, they would constantly reuse and they'd buy the cheapest uh, flashcards they could, whatever they could find on sale, and then they would lose a wedding. And it was just a shame. And I'm like, I, I, my opinion is if you're spending that kind of money in a wedding, just buy a dedicated $30 sand disc. Like you can buy one for $30 or $40. They're just not that expensive. Um, but nonetheless, if you buy the cheapest one and you reuse it many times, there are a limit. Uh, and with nice high-res, high-quality cameras, you're writing a lot to these. So right. you occasionally would lose them and sometimes it would lose the file table. The good news is tools like test disk do a simple thing where they walk the disk and identify file types and reassemble based on the file information that can be reassembled. It does pretty much consistently lose the metadata about the file, such as its name. But when it comes to photos, for example, that's not as relevant. You just want to find all the photos and then you can organize and rename them uh, as yep. you see fit, like so-and-so's wedding. <laughs> so um, Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like it's, a, it's an okay utility. It's not like the most amazing, but hey, it's something. And sometimes you can get some files back with it. And considering how many people within our audience are using Raspberry Pis. I think that recommendation might go a lot further than you might think, because I know we have some photography people in our audience. I'm one myself, but um, yeah, I mean, Raspberry Pis, I mean, it's probably more of a question of who doesn't have a Raspberry Pi in our audience. And the people that don't are probably the ones that are um, unable to find them because of COVID prices right now um, that yeah. would have one otherwise. So that could actually go pretty far for that yep. recommendation. Yep. All right. I think we've reached the end of our utilities list. Mm -hmm. Sure have. Plenty of stuff for people to try. Plenty of stuff for people to troubleshoot. It's best to be familiar with these tools before you need them. So play around with them. IP mm -hmm. is just kind of fun because you may discover something on your network you didn't know was communicating. Uh, the recovery utilities, maybe not, but Pharonix, boy, it's fun to benchmark things. Uh, it. It's kind of, I've played with that a lot. And so some of these are just kind of fun because uh, tuning and troubleshooting and figuring out the changes you made and if something was better. So get out there, play with all these utilities we mentioned. They're a lot of fun. Uh, I'm actually going to this time put them into the show notes. So they'll, they'll be into the uh, description, which will follow over to the show notes. So we will have those in there for those of you that didn't hear some of the commands or just want to cut, copy and paste the commands and, uh, you know, have fun with them. So thanks everyone for listening. Looking forward to seeing everyone next time. Thank you.